Welcome to The Bean Pod, a podcast about decentralized finance and the Beanstalk protocol. I'm your host, Rex. Before we get started, we always want to remind everyone that on this podcast, we are very optimistic about decentralized finance in general and Beanstalk in particular. With that being said, three things. First, always do your own research before you invest in anything, especially what we talk about here on the show. Second, while you're doing that research, try to find as many well-developed opposing viewpoints as possible to get the best overall picture. And third, never ever invest money that you can't afford to lose or at least be without for a while. And with that, on with the show. Cryptocurrency, and specifically decentralized finance, are currently going through the trough side of a hype cycle. As investors look for safe havens and liquidity is moved out of the space, so many of the pretty, shiny things that were so alluring even a year ago are starting to look like empty shells. Plenty of style, but not necessarily much substance. And as the market's thinned, it's become more and more apparent how important DeFi primitives really are. These core functions, projects, and products are fundamental to how the ecosystem works and, over time, how to make it work better. In our own project, Beanstalk, we see a positive carry token as the starting point for an endless number of transaction systems. Our friends at Teller, a decentralized Oracle protocol, see their project as a way to provide data in a way that's transparent, permissionless, and censorship resistant. Their system of validators can be called on to obtain just about any type of information, and their challenge system provides the incentives and penalties that ensure that only the right data reaches an end user. For this episode, Maud and I were lucky enough to sit down with Nick Fett, Teller's CTO. We talk about what the protocol does, why decentralized oracles are important, and how tricky it can be at times to determine truth in a trustless environment. Nick, great to have you. Hey, great to be here. And then we've got Mod back in the studio as well. Mod, always good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Nick, just to kick us off, um, I'd like you to kind of set the stage a little bit, if you would. Um, could you kind of talk us through the the history of price oracles and, and why they're important, and then walk us right into how Teller fits into that uh, general idea of, of decentralized price oracles? Sure. Yeah, you know, that's a huge question, I think. Um, but to kind of give you the background, so uh, the oracle problem, so it actually, the first reference, we know this comes from, there was like a Reddit post on our Bitcoin back in 2014, and it referenced the Oracle problem. So like, how would you create like a decentralized prediction market? Um, and somebody said, well, there's a problem of how do you actually find out the truth? And, and that sort of kickstarted discussions about, you know, well, how do we have sort of decentralized truth in a way? Um, a lot of the earlier designs, so there was like uh, shelling coins or what they would call them, and they use kind of what's called like the shelling point in these auction-based systems to, to find truth in prediction markets. And that's what a lot of them were kind of focused on, on solving. Like, you know, if you would ask it a question, so for instance, like, um, is Joe Biden the president of the United States? Then people would place bets on yes or no. And then 
at the end of the period, you would expect that as long as the majority of the participants are honest, you know, then the yeses would have all of the money. And then if anybody did vote no, they would get their tokens removed and given to the yeses. And it was these kind of systems that like were the backbone or, or the start of the Oracle problem. But as you can guess, those were sort of very slow systems. And people have in a lot of ways been trying to find um, different solutions to the problem over the years. And this was actually so how Teller kind of got started in this. Um, before I was I was doing Teller, I I was doing a decentralized derivative startup. So we were trying to do long and short tokens. So once, you know, you would have like a price feed, so like ETH US dollar, and you could have one token that represented the the leverage long and one that represented the short. Um th this was this was actually a pretty novel idea back in 2017. <laughs> um and then we were, you know, but I, I sort of ran headfirst into the Oracle problem as far as, well, how do you get a price feed and how do you sort of get a price feed that's a little bit faster even than some of the other price feed Oracles that were out there. This was, you know, 2017, 2018. So this was before Chainlink had even launched. Back then, um, the only price Oracle was really live on Ethereum, there there was Augur, which was a, a prediction market that was, that used that shelling system, and then there was uh, what was called Oracleize. They've since rebranded and are doing something different now. But um, back then, Oracleize was you you would pay them like a quarter, and you would ask them to fetch an API value, and then this this guy in London was running a server, and he would go and <laughs> send you back the result to your smart contract, and that was like basically how smart contracts were grabbing oracle data um yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sound doesn't sound very decentralized no but you know like we hadn't people didn't really think through the oracle problem yet you know now now most people know the oracle problem but even up to like two three years ago it was very um the oracle problem was pretty nuanced not many people were thinking about it especially in terms of price feeds you know you had like people were sort of okay with the reputational based systems, you know, that that's like one way that people are solving it currently. And, and people have done it in the past is, you know, I, I guess I can step, a, step back a bit, like what is the Oracle problem? And that's like, how do you find out the truth of something? So, you know, in my derivatives contract example, if, if Maude and I are say we're, we wanted to do a smart contract that bets on the price of Bitcoin. So we each place some ether into a smart contract. And if it goes up over this week, he gets all the ETH. And if it goes down, I get all the ETH. The question is, well, how do you resolve that? Who gets to say what the price of Bitcoin is at the end of the week? And you need a trusted Oracle, if you will, to, to sort of provide that. And we, we could obviously choose you, Rex, like you could be the trusted Oracle. Um, I often am. Yeah, it, it would work. But the problem is, is that, okay, well, now that's this, you know, centralized, trusted party. But, you know, sure. that was that was the Oracleized model, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then people went on, well, okay, so what's like V2 of that? And the answer is like, well, a multi-sig. So we can just have some trusted group of people that we whitelist and, and they all get to sort of agree on, on what it is. And that's like, so like Maker is a whitelisted group of people Chainlink is a whitelisted group of people that the, the, that v2 system is kind of like where a lot of the space is currently mm -hmm. just these you know you have a multi-sig and it controls who gets to say what the price is um mm -hmm. and it can work but then 
the question is as well, okay, so what are the farther designs? How, how can we actually make something that is actually decentralized? So it has some liveness guarantees. It has some, some properties that we would sort of attribute to a traditional decentralized system. And, and that's where we were trying to create with Teller. So, Well, it seems like something like a multi-sig has its limitations. You were talking earlier about, about speed. And I would also say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the term bandwidth, and I don't mean that in a technical sense. I mean that more in the idea of, you know, if you've got, if you've got individuals that are validating, you know, a value or some type of data, you know, there's, there's only so much general bandwidth you know, that you can, you can put in terms of stress on a multi-sig before you, you get past the point of something that's. Well, it's not necessarily like a multi-sig in the sense of like all transactions are flowing through one multi-sig. Like usually like what it'll be is like one multi-sig or a group of people will like whitelist Oracle reporters. Gotcha. I see. And then, you know, like we, we hit this problem actually all the time uh, with users is you know, I'm sure you guys see this in DeFi a lot, like everyone wants price feeds faster. So like, how do you get yep. super, super up to date and super fast price feeds? And the problem with, with oracles is that um, usually once somebody puts something on chain, you need a validation period. So how do you check, you know, especially just in like a decentralized system, how do you check once it's put on chain, was it valid? That's how Teller works. And, and we can say whether or not we need to push that off to a vote and determine whether or not we want to slash someone. Um, but if you have like this whitelisted model or just the trusted model, there is no way to slash them or say that they were wrong. So you can just use it right away. So with it actually leads to a backward sort of thinking about oracles in that a lot of times these decentralized systems can do things really, really fast. So they can just sign, you know, price feeds like, you know, a data feed every second mm-hmm. and push it on chain and you can consume it every single second because there's no way for them to be wrong. And even if there were there, there's nothing you can do about it. So sure. you just sort of consume it and it's a very, very fast Oracle, but then, you know, you're not decentralized in any way. And there's actually mm-hmm. no way to decentralize that. Um, so th- that's one of those things that, you know, centralized Oracles are, are better in some ways because I, I often like to compare it to like an L1 in that, you know, an L1 database will almost always be more performant. It basically will always be more performant than a blockchain. Um, and there's just, you know, comp sci reasons for that. And in the, sure. in the same way, a centralized Oracle provider will most likely always be faster and Nick, more efficient. Uh, in, in the whitelisted model, how are typically, you know, people whitelisted? Sure. Well, you know, like Maker, Maker originally had, um, they had what were like secret whitelists because they, 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 they had said like, well, you know, they didn't want to give away who these individuals were because then you could go attack them in real life. So they had like a secret whitelist of people. And, and then recently they added, I guess not recently, but <laughs> a few years ago now, they added where it was, you know, some larger industry players. So, you know, like other companies would have signers. And that's what you see kind of with Chainlink too. So Chainlink gets to choose who their whitelisters are, whether you know they usually make them stake a certain amount. And then a lot of times they get big companies on board. So um, larger people with reputation um, that they want to be whitelisted. And that's sort of how you trust them. So usually it's 
it's usually just reputation based, um, whether that reputation comes from staking or from actually, you know, having a big name in the space. That's kind of where it comes from. And then, uh, yeah, usually a lot of these reputational based companies too. So Chainlink and probably most companies, you know, who, who else uses like a whitelisted model? So like API3 does, um, where, you know, their data providers are known as well. Um, it's they have like off-chain agreements so it's, it's not like stuff that it doesn't have to be sort of handled on chain you, you can have like a you know go sign something that says you won't lie <laughs> and if you do we're going to take you to court um that's like the traditional model for an oracle and yeah i mean there, there's something to say about that and so to to kind of juxtapose that to tell her as i as i read through your information what came to my mind was the almost, I hate to use the word traditional because I feel like in cryptocurrency and DeFi, tra traditional seems like a little bit of an odd term, but I think of the, let's call it traditional um, hash validation process where there's an opportunity to, to dispute. Want to walk us through Teller's process and, and is, I mean, is that kind of an accurate way of looking at, at, at Teller's validation process? Sure. Um, yeah, in a way, I mean, in a way, we're, we're kind of optimistic in that sense. Um, but the, the earlier version of Teller, so originally when we had launched Teller, we had a proof of work component to it as well, to where in order to submit, you had to solve a proof of work challenge as well. So then there was, there were disputes, but then there was even a proof of work component on top of it, which we were trying to make it more secure, but we, we've since moved past that. Um, we had some issues with proof of work, like a lot of people. Um, but the way that Teller works now, so anybody can come. So Rex, Mod, you guys can stake some Teller tokens. And then you're allowed to report prices. So somebody would come on and say, like in our example, what's the price of Bitcoin? And you guys would then basically race. So you would see, hey, the person that requested that is going to pay $5 to whoever puts the price of Bitcoin on. So you guys race to grab the price of Bitcoin from some sources and submit it on chain. Everybody can look at that value that was put on chain and dispute it. So you can say, hey, he lied, pay a small fee, and it goes to a vote. It's taken off chain, and then the vote determines whether or not they lied. Most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, nobody lies. So it's just the people can use that value whenever they deem they want to use it. Um, obviously, the caveat being they want to wait for people to check it and whether or not it's going to go to a dispute. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the simple way that Teller works. Um, if anyone gets disputed, somebody else can step up and report the value uh, and get the fee. And then it's there's no whitelists involved. There's no way to sort of shut it down. Um, it just runs. And it sounds like this process could really be used for really just about any type of off-chain data, right? I mean, it's it seems like the bounds are really only the needs of a potential user and the, you know, computing ability of of the different validators. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what we're seeing, you know, originally kind of most DeFi, most of, most of the crypto space right now, it, it's basically just DeFi and pe people want price feeds, but you're starting to see different kinds of requests. So whether it's, 
you know, people want information about other chains. So you can think of bridges are basically oracles. They are, they are oracles. So if you're a bridge on one chain, you want to read information about some external chain, you need somebody to pass the information on. And that's why, you know, most bridges still are that V2. It's just like whitelisted, <laughs> whitelists for who, who gets to push the data over. But, you know, you, if you want like a secure decentralized bridge, you would use a model similar to Teller to where you're grabbing information from other chains. But yeah, even, even things such as you, you can do things like off-chain computation. So you, if you had a problem, you could, you could ask it to an Oracle and then the Oracle providers would go do some off-chain computation and return it on-chain. That's something else that, you know, Teller could do, but you, you really don't see that, that kind of demand yet in um, most of the crypto space. Sure. And that actually, that actually leads me to what I was going to ask you next. And, you know, so Teller's been around, gone through a couple iterations or let's say improvements. What do you see as the main use cases now in, in your current situation? I would say bridges and <laughs> obviously price feeds still, you know, people are, people still just want a lot of price feeds. I, I think something that we're seeing a lot of people coming to us, it's, it's just that they want to spin price feeds up quickly or they want to spin information up quickly. And um, that that's sort of one of the problems with the whitelisted providers is they're relatively slow to sort of add a lot of new data feeds. <laughs> So, so Teller has a place kind of there for, for stepping in and, and adding them really quickly in a permissionless fashion. Um, similar to how you saw, you know, I, I think you saw like decentralized exchanges really take off whenever people knew, okay, you can list any token here. Decentralized exchanges had kind of shut, shut down the listing process as far as it was very, very expensive and it was hard to do. So then decentralized exchanges started to blossom because there were no permissions there. Um, in that way, I think as more demands for oracles kind of pop up, the centralized oracle providers kind of won't be able to keep up. And that's whenever some of the decentralized ones will really start to take off. Now, obviously, bridges have been in the news quite a bit, specifically because of security concerns. I mean, do you see do you see tools like Teller being able to help help manage some of those security concerns or or is it, you know, or, or is is Teller and decentralized or Teller and, and decentralized oracles away from that problem? Yeah, no, I, I think it definitely solves a lot of the problems and you'll see it probably start to pop up here over the next year. Um, one of the things that you have to get people to start accepting when it comes to bridges is just that they're slower. Um, you know, right now people want really, really fast bridges and you know, the only way to really do really, really fast bridges is to have kind of that centralized layer of trust. Um, if you would just like slow it down, <laughs> you, you could sort of make a lot of a lot of things a little bit better. You know, same with like if you're going to use Teller, it makes sense. You want to make sure that you slow the chain down just because you know, even Vitalik had posted like there, there were some issues with regarding uh, Wormhole, which was Solana's. Mm -hmm. um, you have a lot of issues with really fast bridges because Ethereum, for instance, isn't final right away. Like you, you can roll the chain back and it, and it's not, it's expensive to do that, but it, it's not like unheard of expensive. So like if you deposited a hundred million dollars on Solana, traded it on a DEX for some other coin, and then it it is significantly less than a hundred million dollars to roll back the Ethereum chain for an hour. 
And then you could simply do it. Say you never sent that money over to the Solana bridge, but you had already traded it away on the Solana side. So, so what happens? Um, that was like an a known attack vector. Uh, Vitalik had kind of posted about that. Obviously, that the the wormhole bridge got hacked for another reason. Um, sure, yep, yep. Just a smart contract bug. But yep. um, you know that was something that people were saying like, don't use these really really fast bridges because it it even makes the main chain of Ethereum less safe whenever people are building these really fast bridges. It seems like when it comes to bridges, you've got. And I, I didn't come up with this, but it, it came to mind as you, as you were talking. You've got that those like three variables of speed, security, and centralization, and you can like pick two. Yeah, well, I think oracles are the exact same way. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like the the blockchain trilemma holds for like basically every app along the stack. Yeah, um, and and yeah, people are just starting to realize that. So, but you know, you you want your bridges to be nice and fast. So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, that seems to be the, the, the way that we move on to more efficient systems and L2 is to figure out, you know, however we can manage to get L1 and L2 working together well in terms of bridging and, you know, that, that Oracle component, it seems like it's, it's a really unique opportunity for both that and a lot of potential, you know, legacy l1 solutions i feel like um i've read in some of your information you know use examples like insurance providers looking for weather feeds or <laughs> you know i i think about beanstalk and the you know the future um operations and smart contracts we're looking to to have built on top of on top of beanstalk in the amount of outside information they'll use and that that oracle component that is well trusted and has and is is relatively fast is going to be extremely important for some of those you know more unusual use cases for sure yeah i mean as you start wanting to actually make smart contracts useful and touch outside world information you know, like real world information and, and make it relevant to normal people like you need oracles and that's kind of why we see them as a big thing going forward and, and i know you guys do too you know what the the cheesy weather example that everybody gives in basic smart contract class aside but yeah no it, it's definitely something that we're working on and I, I think one of the bigger challenges for oracles just going forward in this decentralized way is just how do you sort of source all that truth how do you actually know what what the weather feed is in certain areas of the world. And um, I think that's something that we're still excited to kind of explore. Nick, I wanted to go back and ask uh, a little bit on how Teller uh, works. Uh, so you have you have a, a group of validators and then um, um, those who can also like check uh, or dispute uh, if the price, you know, uh, is yep. different. Can, can you summarize that back again to us? Sure. Well, anybody can be a validator. So you just stake. Uh, right now it's 100 tokens, so it's like $1,500 on mainnet, and, and then you're allowed to be a validator. So you, you stake those tokens, and, and anybody can do it. You can, you know, there's no limit to the number of people. And then anybody's allowed to be a disputer. So, you know, if you're a user, if you're just a casual token holder, usually the, usually the disputers are the other reporters themselves trying to gain a competitive advantage, because they're the ones that sort of monitor the system the most. Um, 
but yeah, one anybody can submit a dispute. So right now the, the dispute fee is 10 TRB. So it's like one tenth the stake amount and, and then they dispute it and it would go through a voting process. So it gets kicked over to a voting process. Uh, the vote uh, is split. So we have this kind of how the dispute resolution piece works, but it's split uh, into four pieces. So 25% of the vote is the token holders. 25% is the reporters, 25% uh, is the users, the people who are paying for requests, and then uh, the last 25% is the team. So we, we give ourselves some and we can throw it away at some point. Okay, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the dispute is if, if I, as a validator, had reported a price and then, you know, for some reason, my price wasn't the one picked, I can dispute it to, you know, get back my stake tokens. Is that correct? Wait, what do you mean? Uh, so, uh, uh, wh wh who disputes and what are, what are you disputing? So, you're just disputing the value. So, like, if, if you push the value of, of BTC USD and, you know, you said it was $1 million, uh, I would come and dispute that and say it's not $1 million. Right. And, and then you take the, the staked uh, uh, tokens of whoever, you know, sent the $1 million. Uh, yep. Okay. What what would it take to compromise uh, such a system? So if we have one hundred validators, what what would it take, you know, for eventually Terror to give out the wrong the wrong price? Sure. So there, there's a few ways to break Teller. So the first way, the way to really break Teller. So like if you actually want to break it for good, what you would need to do is you would need to break that voting system that we had. So like I, you submitted a price of a million dollars, I dispute it, and then you break the vote and say like no that's actually a good price and you get your stake back you know because the problem is is then it would sort of reduce trust in, in the voting system in general um the other way to break teller is to sort of just censor it so if you would basically i would i would dispute you that it was a million dollars then i would post the correct price so i don't know what's what's bitcoin at today <laughs> uh whatever the whatever the correct price of Bitcoin is. Yeah, 23-ish. 23-ish, yeah. And, and so I would post that on chain. And then the way that you could censor the teller system is you would just dispute that. So you would say, hey, that's wrong. Even, even though it's actually right, you could, you could pay a fee and take it off chain. And then I would probably just put it on chain again because I know like I'm probably going to, I'm going to get my stake passed back to me plus your dispute fee. Um, it's just, it's a two day long vote for that to happen. So I'll just submit it again, probably restake and submit it again. And then you would just dispute that too. <laughs> and then it would just turn into this system where hopefully like the game theory would say that more people would want to come in, stake teller and start reporting a correct Bitcoin price because in the event that you dispute them, they're gonna get their money back in two days plus a nice hefty return. So that would be um, how it could sort of censor it, if you will. But those are kind of the, the only two ways that you can, you can really break Teller. So when it comes to those, those voters, you said token holders, validators, users, and the team. So how, I mean, is that for, for checking a, a particular piece of data, is that like a unanimous process? So if, you know, if I'm a validator and I give an incorrect piece of data and it goes back for dispute, and it's voted on by those four groups, do they have to completely agree or is it some type of basic majority or? It's a basic majority and there, there's multiple rounds too. So like you can, if you don't agree with the first round, you can kick it off to another round. 
Um, and, and this was something we had some disagreements on, or, or not disagreements, but like discussion on early on. Because like what you can do is you can do like the shelling system to where like I, you slash people who vote not with the majority. So like I'm going to say that it was true. You're going to say it was false. And if more people say it was true, the other false people lose their tokens. But what we found with especially price feeds and a lot of these things is that it's, it's really nuanced. Um, sometimes even saying like what a valid price is isn't necessarily clear. Um, you know, like in, in the price of the Bitcoin. You know, if it's twenty, let's say it's twenty-three thousand. Um, if I submit it to twenty-four thousand, should I get slashed or disputed? Yeah. Yep. Um, it's really, really hard. Um, sometimes yes, but if the price actually just jumped on a few exchanges up to twenty-four thousand, is that good? Um, so we're allowed to vote. You can either vote um, to where you slash the person, to where you don't slash the person and give them the dispute fee, or to where everybody just kind of gets their money back. And and in the past, we've we've had examples of just where like, listen, we're just going to give everybody their money back. Like, let's just check our API feeds from now on. Like, it wasn't an attack. It was just like there there was some somebody was using certain APIs and another person was using another API and, and they just disagreed. Sure. And that's, I mean, that's a thought that passed through my mind as you were talking earlier is that there are times when, especially coin prices, yeah. such a good example. If you, if you are using different systems and we've had this discussion inside of Beanstalk a number of times, you know, what's the best, what's the, what's the best price feed for ETH? Yeah. And, you know, you ask 10 people and you'll get 12 different answers. And uh, I'm sure that that's a, that's a common issue, especially when there's a lot of, let's say, like a sensitivity in a given piece of data and maybe be like high rate of change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so like with Teller, we, we actually let you specify the granularity level of the price feed. So sometimes, sometimes users will be okay with, you know, like you can say, like, I want the ETH price. That's actually different than I want the ETH price according to the Coinbase API. Um, sure. Those are, those are two completely different things because, you know, some people might want according to these two APIs. And then it's it's actually a whole lot easier to say what a valid dispute is, you know, were these valid API queries and, and you, can, you can sort of prove that. Um, the problem comes in, however, that if you're only using a handful of APIs, now you're actually really easily censored because those API providers could easily shut you down um, if they knew what was going on. So if, if you wanted, say, a more robust price feed, you could say something like, I just want a valid ETH US dollar price. Doesn't matter where you get it from. And, and now, obviously, that that means the, the reporters can get it from any API they want, or, or they can even manually go look at a website. But you're not going to get sort of as tight of a range. So, you know, there probably has to be a little bit more, you know, variability in, in the accepted answer. And you kind of leave it up to the dispute process to, to handle what that valid range is. So there's pros and cons to both. Um, it's just kind of up to the user to determine what they can handle. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, so we were talking about the tension between speed security and centralization before. It almost seems like in this case, there's a tension between like uh, specificity yeah. and censorability. 
Yeah, no, you know, we we have it like so like we have a whole like series on subjectivity and price oracles. And, sure. Yeah. And how, yeah, how how amb ambiguous you you allow your data to be is actually more censorship resistant. Yeah, I, that's I, I never never even thought about that, but that's it's a great point, and yeah, maybe it, it may make your data feed more vulnerable to dispute between validators but just like you said it makes it less censorship resist or it makes it more censorship resistant externally yep yeah i mean this is like some we always push back on chainlink because they always like to brag about uh they, they allow trusted data feeds so you know like paid apis and, and things that they can use and we're like well that's actually a really negative thing <laughs> sure. because don't want to do that like and publish which trusted data feeds you're using so. Yeah, in incentives can be very much, very much a two-way street or a double-edged sword. Sure. Yeah. It's um. But anyway, that that's uh. <laughs> definitely watch it whenever you're picking your price feeds and, and pick sure. which ones. I think some of the other pieces come in. You know, even when you're knocking not not price feeds, like when you're talking bridges, there's the whole finality issue. There's the whole. You know, are you actually running? Are your reporters running nodes over there? Um, how do you know if that's not being attacked? There's a whole bunch of issues too. Nick, I'm thinking out loud here, um, sure. and I'm wondering if this is already you know uh, done in, in some way, um, and and we reverse the way you know that the price oracle is working. So let's say that we're interested in the price of three curve, um, and what we would do is that we would start with the assumption that you know the price of three curve is, is always equal one dollar, and and we would be a validator and always push that the price of three curve is one dollar. And once it gets disputed, this is when we know that the price has changed, um, and you know it's not it's not equal one anymore. Does that make sense? Because something like that be used uh, in this way? Yeah, for sure. Um, you you would definitely just want like a lot of times people will use Teller as like the fallback in that sense. Um, so uh, you could just have like a lot of times when people come to us and they're like, hey, we want really fast price updates, you know. <laughs> basically with every block and we're like hey you can't afford that neither can we um, to push that many times but what we tell them to do is like you can actually use like the uniswap price for a given pool and then just use the teller as a fallback to where the uniswap price has to be within two percent of the teller value <laughs> so then you you can use it uh but we update the teller value say we'll update it if there's a two if there's a one percent change in the price and then as long as the Uniswap price is relatively within there, we know that it's not being attacked and you can use it all on chain. Um, but yeah, you, you can definitely do things like that where you would just assume that it's a dollar and then have Teller push it on and able to like override that in some way. That almost seems like it's a, a security feature or could be used as a security feature for some type of unplanned change to any type of any type of data feed that may have you know, your point may may start as, you know, internal to a particular protocol or project. If you use Teller as your as your backup, you might be able to de to detect unwanted or unexpected changes, right? For sure. Yeah, I mean, that's like I, I tell people like the Uniswap price feeds, for instance, are normally for most things they're really great. Um, you know, as long as you you don't have a whole lot of value in your system. Um, and the Uniswap pool has some liquidity, it's, it works just fine. You know, nobody's going to throw the Uniswap pool to 
to mess up your system. But if the liquidity on the Uniswap pool goes down or, you know, if Uniswap upgrades to a new contract and all the liquidity leaves, then you're stuck without an Oracle. So then you might want to listen to to the teller price, which isn't going to change. Sure. So another thing that was spinning around in my mind getting ready to talk with you is zero knowledge proofs. And, you know, when I think about Teller's ability to tell me a thing using its own internal set of validators, I mean, I I feel like it's a relatively quick jump to zero knowledge proofs. I mean, is that something that is that something that Teller is considering, has considered, you know, is, is, is on your radar or what, what do you think about zero knowledge proofs in Teller? Yeah, I mean, we're still trying to find a way to use them for like every data push, you know, or if there is a way to use it for, for that. Um, the question is always like, why are you keeping it a secret? And do you need to keep it a secret? Um, sure. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. There, there's actually, we're working with a cool system to do where you would do like zero knowledge commitments on, on one chain and then you can pass them to another chain, um, which isn't necessarily Teller using zero knowledge proofs, but um, <laughs> sort of Teller involved in the process, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we haven't really found some people are, are doing things with zero knowledge proofs as, as far as like random numbers so you can sign it and then reveal it later. Um, but it's, it's definitely something that we want to explore more. I, I definitely, I personally have just gotten into it probably over the last six months. I've been building with a lot of zero knowledge libraries just for fun. Nice. No, I, I was going to ask uh, Nick, like what challenges uh, are Stellar, you know, facing today? And where do you see, you know, price articles in general going in the future or, you know, which, which direction uh, do you think it is? Sure. Um, well, I think some of the challenges that we face today, it's, you know, kind of like I was talking a lot about trying to find the right users. Um, you know, getting actual users in the space is really tough. Um, obviously, just because, A, I, I think a lot of times people overestimate the, the total number of users in the space. <laughs> um, there's like not thousands of them. Um, and then the other thing too, it's, you know, we, we have, people have gotten used to, whether it's like Chainlink's fault or, or just the fault of using centralized oracles, it's like people are used to, kind of really fast oracles or, or on-demand oracles to where you just throw a price on chain and then you can can use it instantly. Well, well, that's you know kind of like we were talking about. We, we want people to sort of slow down some of these applications um, and that'll make it good. And, and then also just having to pay for oracles. So, you know, every time like we're relatively cheap to push, it's like 300,000 gas to push a teller value on chain. Um, but on mainnet Ethereum, especially during like, high times, like, you know, that can be $10, $20 a push. Um, so if, if you want price updates every, you know, five minutes and it's going to cost you $20, it can get relatively expensive pretty quick for your protocol. Um, and a lot of times people are just not used to paying at all for Oracle data. So trying to teach people that, you know, Oracles cost money and, and then there's some of these things about just, just being slow and, and using it when, whenever you in a smart fashion. Um, as far as where I think price oracles and, and oracles in general are going to the, in the future, I, I think we're just at this stage where we're starting to see real decentralized oracles come about. You know, pe- people are starting to realize that, okay, we, we can actually have decentralized price feeds and 
even just people worrying about oracles is huge compared to where we were three years ago. You know, the fact that I'm talking about price oracles on a podcast is awesome. Um, but then I think, you know, getting rid of a lot of these, these multi-sig pieces, you know, as people start realizing that those are bad ideas, you know, there, there will be things, what, what I'm hoping to kind of make Teller into is, is that kind of like the protocol, if you will, for oracles. Um, in, in the same way, like Uniswap in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's on-chain, it's unchangeable, and people can just use it. That's kind of my vision and, and how I hope Teller will work. Um, there, there's not really a whole lot of kind of fluff involved in a lot of the, these other pieces. You know, it still seems like really sort of early on, and there's like a lot of governance and a lot of changes and a lot of, you know, just wool over the eyes about how the, the system actually works. But Ideally, we just like simplify it. It works. You know the limitations. You know how to break it. But this is it. This is how you have to use it. Go deal with it. I feel like that's um, when we look beyond. You know, folks in the DeFi space just trying to to look to make money or or whatever. When we actually look at different groups and projects that are trying to build, let's call them like DeFi primitives. You know, I feel like that is a place where where Teller and Beanstalk are very similar in that like the goal is to come up with a system that is really a springboard for other systems. You know, for, right. for Beanstalk, we want to build we want to build a, a financial system that's a springboard for all kinds of other systems that can leverage positive carry. Seems like for Teller, you like you want to build a protocol that is a springboard for all kinds of other applications that need reliable, decentralized information that they can trust. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean it's kind of like why we all got into it. You know, it's yeah. you're building these things to, you know, smart contracts and all these primitives and protocols are supposed to sort of remove the middlemen in the system. Yeah. So, you know, obviously like an Oracle is like, the definition of like a middleman in like the, you know, the original Bitcoin context we were talking about, like that is the middleman, but how do you remove the middleman and make it sort of non-extractive in as, as much way as possible? You know, how do you make financial contracts that don't have somebody actually making money off of it? Um, yeah. I mean, that's it. It's, yeah. it, and there's almost a difference between saying, you know, when you, I mean, even the term middleman, you know, if you can create a middle, uh, it's, it's in the middle, but it's not a man, you know, it's, it's, yep. It may be an intermediary, but it's decentralized and trustless and censorship resistant. You know, that's that's the goal. Yeah, you know, and that's like we've we've changed even a lot of our mindset over Teller over the past few years. You know, originally, like we've stripped away a lot of originally we were thinking DAO, everything everything as a DAO, and and we've stripped almost every voting piece out of the system because we saw it as a risk for other protocols you know the more the more pieces that we're allowed to vote on you know the more we could potentially screw up your price feed so like how can we strip that out and just make it as, as much of like an immutable smart contract obviously we have to vote on the disputes um but other than that like it, it's all gone and and that and that's something that we're proud of like you know we, we want it to, to be there and it just sort of works. There, there's not even a DAO that's extracting rent and making money off of this. It's just a smart contract. Beauty and the simplicity. Right. Well, Mad, you have anything else? You, you took my, you took my good, 
uh, ending question about what do you see as the future? What else you got, Mod? <laughs> <laughs> That's it from my side. This has been very informative, yeah. uh, Nick. Cool. Yeah. Well, so, so Nick, what I'll do is I'll, I mean, uh, you know, I'll just hand over to you. Do you have any, any final thoughts, anything you want to leave us with? No, you know, I think if you guys are interested in learning more about Teller, there's Teller.io is our website. Um, happy to just kind of anytime talk over Oracle designs, you know, just definitely it's great that you guys are thinking about it. Um, just the more that we can educate people to actually think about the Oracle problem and, you know, whether it's how do you, you know, wait for data in, in a safe manner versus what should the data be, you know, that whole subjectivity discussion. Um, there are a lot of hard questions without really right answers. So, you know, happy to talk it over with any users in the Oracle space or DeFi space. Perfect. Yeah, this is great. Nick, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, excited to hear it live. So, oh man, we're, thank you, we're Nick. getting close. <laughs> All right. As Nick said, you can find out more about Teller by heading to their website at teller.io. That's T E L L O R. Io. You can also find them on Twitter, at Teller, and on YouTube. The Bean Pod is a production of Beanstalk Farms, a decentralized autonomous organization. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Medium, Discord, and our home on the web at bean.money. You can also find me on Twitter at RexTheBean. And as a final reminder, this podcast is not financial advice. Thanks again for listening.